more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Hebrews is taken up with the perfection of Jesus and his perfect finished work. The result? God will succeed with you. Next on Daily in Christ, strong assurance for you. And I welcome you once again to Daily in Christ, a weekly study in God's Word that is made possible over the World Wide Web from our website, dailyinchrist.org. You can also uh, download and subscribe to the podcast as it's made available through the Apple iTunes Store. And we also have a link that you can use if you're using other devices like Android as well. In fact, there's a whole article there on our website about how to receive Daily in Christ automatically as a podcast. Well, here we are, would you believe it, in part 29 of our study in the book of Hebrews. Last time we were still in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. Those are powerful, rich verses that really get to the high point or the climax of the new covenant that is so focused on Jesus and his finished work. And because Jesus has accomplished all, finished all, as we were saying last time, based on what Hebrews is saying, we are complete, lacking nothing. Now, religion, what does religion frequently teach? Well, you're incomplete. And it kind of gives lesson after lesson after lesson about how to become a better Christian, how to pray better, how to read your Bible. Don't get me wrong, those things are important, but they have absolutely nothing to do with our completeness. Our completeness is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is total provision from Father God. Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10 says this, For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Did you get that? Verse 9 says the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Nothing is lacking in the Lord Jesus of the Father. Nothing is lacking of the Spirit. Certainly nothing lacking of the Son. Out of that fullness, we are in Christ. Those who have been born again, baptized by the Spirit of God into Christ, we are in Christ and being in Him, we are complete. Real Christianity is not about the Christian, it's about Christ. Real Christianity is Christ-centered, not Christian-centered. It's not about what we do for God, but what Father God has done through the accomplishments of his precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and rely upon the Lord in prayer. Father, we are amazed by your love. We are amazed by your wonder of righteousness and holiness, spotless, infinite, pure. And Father, to think that you gave your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to demonstrate your love, but to demonstrate your righteousness, that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him being the perfect son of God that he is and the perfect son of man that he is. Thank you for his perfect finished work that makes us complete. 
Lord, we freely and gladly confess that we need you, and we thank you, Lord, that you are our all in all. As we turn to your holy word, the Bible, I pray that you, by your spirit, would reveal yourself, reveal the fullness of the Lord Jesus, especially as we are in this passage of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we want to move along in our study, and so we begin our lesson today in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. It's going to sound familiar. We're going to hear a little bit from the New Covenant, not the full New Covenant that's laid out in Hebrews chapter 8, but we'll get into the reason why this is sort of a shorter um, recitation of the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now, this citation or recitation of the New Covenant uh, focuses on the aspects that deal with our condition as a redeemed and saved people. And it's a condition that is made possible by God himself, not because of anything that we do. And therefore, we can't mess it up. That's really important to understand. That's what's so brilliant about God's plan of redemption and salvation. It's not based upon us. It's taken out of the hands of those that can mess it up into the hands of God himself who accomplishes all through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it allows in this new covenant and what God has done inside of us, a following of God that's made possible because of an intrinsic and internal principle, a a new heart that wants to love and follow God and the mind of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Now I get a lot more into the whole business of the new heart and the new spirit uh, in the parts of our study when we're in Hebrews chapter 8, and I encourage you to download those programs. Also, what's part of this wonderful uh, condition of the new covenant that's given to us, our condition, our now condition as believers, is that we are forgiven now and forever. And that's key. And we've talked about that with the remission of sins. This is a covenant. It's God's promise to perform all and do it completely. We've said this repeatedly because Hebrews brings it up repeatedly. It's not based on you or me or your promises or my promises, our commitments or anything else that we do for God. It is singularly a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. We are the beneficiaries of that covenant, those of us who are in Christ because of the miracle of God's grace. And in verse 18, it says this in Hebrews 10, 18, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let me read that verse in the Amplified. It says this, now where there is absolute remission, forgiveness, and cancellation of the penalty of these sins and law breaking, there is no longer any offering made to atone for sin. Did you catch that? absolute remission. And remember, remission refers to the total removal of sins, past, 
present, and future. It is an absolute remission. The uh, One of my favorite uh, resources for understanding uh, the uh, definition of a Greek word in context is AMG's complete word study of the New Testament. And they point out that the Greek word here for remission is aphasis. It's the same word in Luke 4.18 where Jesus declares this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, that's aphasis, to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, aphasis, those who are oppressed. Now, the complete word study says the work of Christ, therefore, is designated as deliverance from everything that holds a man prisoner away from God. However, setting sinful man free would have been a very dangerous thing if God did not simultaneously change man's nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 2 Peter 1.4. Man's freedom is is not one that permits him to continue in sin, 1 John 3, 6, but binds him in Christ. What Christ does is not simply to take man from prison and set him free, but also to change him radically, giving him power over sin. Isn't that great? And so that's the idea of that Hebrew word, aphasis, behind Hebrews ten eighteen, where it says, now, where there is remission of these aphasis, deliverance from these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It means there's no need for a further sacrifice by you or anyone else. Your Christian life is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful news. Now let's move on to verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, picking up in verse 19, which reads, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, the first word of uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 is the word therefore. And you know what they say about the word therefore? What's the therefore? Therefore, well, based on everything that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the perfection of his person and the perfection of his finished work on our behalf. It says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holy, holiest. Now, think of that. Having boldness to enter the holiest. Christian, are you holy enough to enter God's holiest? Let me frame this in the understanding that took place in the Old Testament. 
there was under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant paradigm, different places. And there was wall after wall after wall. There was the outer wall of the temple proper. And then for those who were worshipers of Jehovah, there was the first place, which was the temple or uh, the, the uh, court of the Gentiles. And then there was a wall. And there was a, a warning that said, don't you dare go past the wall or you could be killed. Then there was the court of the women that was a little closer to the center of the temple. And then there was the court of the men who beat the women in getting closer to the center of the temple. Then there was the altar where there was the offering of the sacrifice where only the priests could go. And then there was a veil and then there was a place called the holiest of holiest where only the high priest, one man could go one time a year. And that was an earthly temple. What about heaven itself? That's what this is talking about, having boldness to enter the holiest. So again, Christian, I ask you, are you holy enough to enter God's holiness? Well, you might think, I'm not sure about that. Well, the answer to that is, yes, Christian, you are holy enough to enter God's holiest. Why? Because Hebrews 10.10 says, by that will, that's Jesus saying, I have come to do your will, O God. We have been sanctified. Sanctified means made holy, made 100% perfectly holy through the offering of the perfect body of the perfect Lord Jesus Christ once for all. You are not unholy now or ever because of the perfection of Jesus and the perfection of his completed work for you. You are and forever will be holy. The reason is simple. Christ is your holiness, not you or your performance, pass or fail. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 says that Christ has been made unto us sanctification from God. How holy is Jesus? He's 100% holy. As holy as he is, he is your holiness. Well, it says in verse 19b, by the blood of Jesus. That blood gives us perfect purification. That blood gives us a perfect remission of all sins. That blood brings a perfect inauguration of the infinitely better new covenant. And then it goes on to say, by a new and living way. It's a new way. It's not the dead way of the law. It's the new and living way. Hebrews 8, 9 of the deadness of the law said, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And it continues in verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. What is the veil? It is his flesh. Again, we talked a little bit earlier in another lesson about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole reason why the Son of God was born, was begotten, the Son of Man. Flesh was needed. And through that veil of his flesh, by the a new and living way of Jesus himself, 
Jesus is the way of grace. He is the living way, as opposed to dead works that come from us. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, the way, it is the way of a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a person who is an example. This is a person who we are in and who is inside us. Jesus in John 14, 6 declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's all about a living relationship with the living God. So there we see verse 20 and the power of that new and living way which the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished through all that he did through the veil, his flesh. Now we go on. And uh, isn't this powerful in verse 21? It says, and having a high priest over the house of God. We have that high priest. And that theme came up earlier in our study of the book of Hebrews, earlier in the book of Hebrews itself. We have this one who is the perfect mediator between us and God. We do not need another mediator. We do not need the saints to pray for us. We do not need Mary to pray for us. We do not need the intervention of the the church, whoever it may be. Jesus is a perfect and total mediator. He is our perfect high priest, and he is the high priest over all the house of God. Now, what happens is, this next part Because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, there are three let us uh, phrases that comes out. And let us means allowing what, or rather who, is already in us. This isn't a conditional statement, if you do this then. So the first one says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, that again, remember the let us means allowing who is already inside of us. We're already in this state, if you will, where indeed we can allow this to happen. So first of all, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It says a true heart. And remember, when we were back in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and talking about the particulars of the new covenant, uh, it talked about the new heart. And we cross-referenced over to another passage in Ezekiel 36 that talks about God giving us a brand new heart. We don't have that evil, wicked, inconsistent heart. God has created us, recreated us, with a new heart, a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, what's this faith based on? It's not based on, oh, I got to have enough faith. I have to try to be, oh, I need more faith. Yeah, I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. No, no, no. It's full assurance. What's that assurance based on? Everything that we've gone over in the book of Hebrews, everything that's declared from Hebrews chapter 1 all the way to this point, Hebrews chapter 22. It's the full assurance of Jesus, who he is, the perfection of him. Aren't you glad this is not based on you and what you do for God, for your performance, 
fail, that wouldn't give you or me full assurance of faith. As a matter of fact, the number one reason why Christians have a roller coaster in their Christian experience, and some of our international listeners may or may not know what a roller coaster is. A roller coaster is an amusement park ride. It's a little car that's like a little train that's on a track, and it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Well, some Christians have that in their Christian experience. Up, they're doing good. Down, they're not doing as good. It's like a roller coaster, up and down. No, that's when we have that kind of experience in our Christian life, it's because we're basing in our mind our Christian life on us. No wonder it's like a roller coaster. And some people don't like riding on roller coasters. In fact, they get sick. Me, I like roller coasters. But I like roller coasters in an amusement park. I don't like roller coasters in my Christian walk. And I don't have to have that. Neither do you. We have the full assurance of Jesus. And that is steady ground. Mm, that encourages me today. And I hope it does too. I'm sure it does. Now It says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Again, we don't have a dirty, wicked heart. We had that before we were born again, before we were recreated. But God didn't give us a dirty heart. God didn't give us an unrighteous heart. God didn't give us a wicked, deceitful heart. No, he gave us a clean heart, sprinkled from an evil conscience. You know, as we begin to renew our minds according to what the truth of the word says, like right where we are here in Hebrews 10.22, it begins to work a transformation in the experience of our Christian life. And I qualified that by saying experience of our Christian life. We're already in clean. We're already in righteous. We're already in holy. But if you believe that you're unrighteous, if you believe that you're unclean, if you believe you're unholy and profane, then that's going to have a deep impact on the experience of your Christian life. But when you understand through the solid truth of God's word that you've got a new heart, a true heart, that you do indeed have full assurance of faith, that you already have a new heart that has been washed from an evil conscience, Wow, that changes everything. And then bodies washed with pure water. Even our bodies, which, you know, our bodies are not the heavenly bodies, the spiritual bodies that we will have, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These are earthly bodies, but even then, these bodies have been washed with pure water. And guess what? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that... Um, those bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of God himself. The place of worship is as close as our body. Wow. Now the bottom line of all this is because of what Jesus has accomplished for us totally, perfectly, completely, we are clean and we can indeed draw near to God in the holiest, most intimate place of his presence. We can indeed be close to God. And we can't take any credit for it. But we can sure enjoy it. Closeness, intimacy with Papa God, Father God. 
Well, there's another let us, and that is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Confession means, uh, the Greek word is homologeo, which means literally same word. Our word matches God's word. And we can have that true confession of hope. And remember, hope is future directed. Our destiny is a destiny of God's success with us. Did you hear what I said? Our destiny, Christian, your destiny is our hope is God's success with us. That's the hope. And you don't have to back away. You don't have to be bashful and say, boy, that seems awfully prideful. Well, if your success was based on you, yeah, that would be prideful and sinful. But your success is made possible by God. And success, by the way, is uh, in every way fulfilling the will of God the Father. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And that idea of wavering means back and forth. No, there's no need for back and forth. You know, does God accept me or does he not accept me? Am I righteous or am I not righteous? Am I holy or am I unholy? Am I clean or am I dirty? That's wavering back and forth. Remember the whole ground of our hope that we can have a strong confession of and we can hold fast. I like that. Hold fast the confession of our hope. You know, it's like the anchor of a ship holding fast to the rocks. And that keeps us consistent. The consistency is that our Christian life is not based on me. My Christian life is based on the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can we hold fast our confession of hope without wavering? Good question. The second part of verse 23 says, for, which you could also say means because, because he who promised is faithful. The success of your Christian life, dear Christian brother, dear Christian sister, is not based on your faithfulness. It is based on the faithfulness of the one who made the promise to finish all. As it says uh, in the word of God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion onto the day of Christ. This is so good. It's so encouraging. And you notice it said, hold fast the confession. And I said, confession is the Greek word homologeo, which literally means same word. Confession is a spoken word. There's something about speaking the word of truth, the word of God out loud. I don't understand why that's so important, but I know it's important in my own life. If it's in my mind, it, it doesn't achieve the same level of connecting with my experience as confessing it. And certainly confessing it with brothers and sisters in Christ. And this gets us into the next part of Hebrews chapter 10, which gets into the together life of our Christianity. Verse 24 says, and let us consider, let us think about one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There is a tremendous power when brothers and sisters in Christ can encourage each other in these things that Hebrews is all about. How good the Lord is, how good Jesus is, how everything that he is and everything that he's accomplished is complete and perfect. We can encourage one another. Now, this isn't when it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. It isn't about sitting around together discussing how to be more loving or how to do more good works. No, this is encouraging each other in the Lord, who he is and what he has accomplished for us. Out of that place and space comes the love and the good works. We encourage each other with the reality of Christ alive inside of us. And it begins to well up in our hearts and our lives. And we share with one another um, the, the wonderful, loving, good works that his life inside of us encourage, encourages loving others, doing good works for others. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up good works. Now, let me just, you know, again, we're, we're trying to make the point that uh, the reality and the life of Christ inside of us is the source of the love that comes out of us and the good works. And we're on the, when we're on the same page, on the same word with other brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like um, coals, you know, in a fire. If you take the coals and you spread them apart, they get dimmer and dimmer. They're like just embers. But when you gather them together and then fan those coals, it goes into a wonderful flame. This is so important that we do this as brothers and sisters in Christ, not only on a Sunday morning, but in many different ways. Uh, Maybe through a Facebook page, maybe through a call, maybe through a visit, maybe through helping someone with uh, fixing a front porch, whatever. And then here's an important part. It says, not forsaking, verse 25, the assembling of ourselves to gather. That's the gathering of the believers, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This idea of forsaking, the Greek word, literally means, speaks of a desertion or an abandonment. That's really what it's talking about. It it goes beyond, well, you're not showing up on Sunday morning for worship. It's this idea of deserting or abandoning our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're like soldiers together in a war. Those soldiers need to stick together. We're like a team that's competing in the championships. We need to stick together. And, and, And to walk away from that is like deserting them. They feel abandoned. And we can feel deserted and abandoned. And it says, exhort one another there in verse 25. The Amplified brings out the sense of the Greek word with that. It's an admonishing. It's a warning, an urging, and an encouraging. A warning, an urging, and an encouraging. We need that. You know, we need the warnings to say, hey, be careful of this. You know, watch it. Uh, Because Satan is like a lion, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, his power has been stripped, but I'll tell you what, Satan is really good at deceiving us 
into thinking he's so mighty and powerful. And, and we need to say to, to each other, brothers and sisters, you know, we need to warn one another and say, watch out for the wiles of the enemy. But remember, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And there's that aspect of urging one another. You know, it's that sense of um, uh, urging toward uh, faith, urging toward believing the Lord, urging toward believing big things about God big inside of us, and then encouraging. All of us need encouragement in our daily lives. Let's face it, life can be rough, and it can be really easy for us if we're playing Lone Ranger Christianity to feel discouraged, to fall into some of the lies of the enemy, to wonder, where should I go? That's what our brothers and sisters in Christ are all about. And there's such a beauty in these verses. Isn't there verse 24? Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day uh, that's referred to there is the day of Christ's return. Question. Aren't we closer to his return today than we were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago? You bet. And so it's all the much more important for us to gather together, to be doing this, to be encouraging, stirring up love and good works, to be uh, warning, urging, and encouraging each other. That day of Christ's return is closer now than ever before. And we need each other more than ever. The early church Christian leader Ignatius of long ago once said, when you frequently and in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. Oh boy, isn't that powerful? And it's true. The powers of Satan are overthrown. His mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. And so there you have it, the let us uh, phrases uh, there in Hebrews chapter 10 that are the result of the life of Christ inside of us. Let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then in verse 23, it says, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then the third one in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right, we're going to move on to uh, Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. This podcast is going to run a little bit longer because I want to make sure that I hit these verses in the context of what we just said. So let's read beginning in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary. 
adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him, speaking of God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In the very first episode of this series, uh, I talked about the warnings that are in the book of Hebrews. There are a number of warnings, and there are two of those several warnings that are particularly strong and grievous. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 6 and in Hebrews chapter 10, in these verses that we're in right now. And I made the case then, and I make the case now, that for literally decades, I used these scary verses, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 6, and these here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, to prove the case, as I believed, that a Christian could definitely lose their salvation. However, and I've talked about this from time to time in this series, I have to say I'm embarrassed that I held that position because I held the position without a careful study of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is absolutely not a treatise on how to lose your salvation. And it's important to note that Hebrews, the scary verses in Hebrews chapter 6 and then these in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through uh, Uh, verse 31, have an an important key immediate context. We've been talking about this in Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll get back to that matter of context in a minute. But as I said in that first lesson in our study in Hebrews, remember, Hebrews, the letter to Hebrews is written to Jews. Both those who who had received Jesus as Messiah and were born again, as well as those who hadn't received Christ. They were not born again. The Jews, whether born again or not, thought that they were God's children because they were descendants of Abraham. They believed that their flesh descent from Abraham was enough. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing that congregation of Jews where some considered faith in Jesus Christ to be optional. And they believed that because they said, well, we are physical descendants of Abraham. We are Jews. And yet the case is brought out over and over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews, very emphatically, that Jesus Christ himself, the perfection of his person, the perfection of his perfect finished work, his blood, his work, his accomplishment is the only basis upon which we have the assurance of hope, the assurance of faith, the assurance of salvation. Now, let's get back to the concept of context. Context, context, context. Those who would make the case, as I did for decades, that these verses in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, pr- 
prove that a Christian can lose their salvation, those who make that case obviously totally ignore the immediate, proximate, and full context of Hebrews. Someone once said, and and wisely so, that a text without context is pretext. And in the immediate context of these verses, up into the previous verse, verse 25, what did we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25? A long argument about how we can lose our salvation? No, of course not. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25, is about the success of Jesus Christ alone, accomplishing all alone for and with all of us who are in Christ. Those verses are adamant about the finished work of Jesus Christ and the resulting certainty of our salvation as the result. Remember Hebrews 10.10, it says, by that will, whose will? Your will? No. Jesus' will. By that will, we have been sanctified, made totally 100% holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's in the perfect tense, meaning done once for all time. How many holy people end up in hell? None. How many holy people end up in heaven? All of them. We have been made holy, sanctified, set apart, not by ourselves, but by God himself through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then there's Hebrews 10 verse 14. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How in the world could we possibly, with honesty, after seeing those verses, actually believe that Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 are about Christians losing their salvation. It is not. Or God would be psychotic. He would be saying one thing in one moment and talking out the other side of his mouth the next. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Deuteronomy 23, 19. God is God. And if he went through all of that, then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again through the miracle of grace, is forever. It's for keeps, and we have the word of Hebrews to back it up. Well, let's walk through these verses. Uh, obviously, these warning verses in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 are for someone. Let's find out who that kind of person is. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully. Now remember the we, he's talking to a congregation of Jews, both unsaved Jews, uh, rather saved Jews and unsaved Jews. If we, Jewish brothers, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. First of all, it says, if we sin willfully. What is meant here by willful sinning? Well, it could not mean just any willful sin because most sins are willful. Let me ask you, when was the last time you sinned? And 
When was the last time you sinned willfully? You see, it couldn't mean just any willful sin. Otherwise, no one could stand. We would all face the certain expectation of judgment. Well, what then is this willful sin? Well, look at the context. It says, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Well, what truth? Well, the truth that the writer of Hebrews inspired by the Holy Spirit has been making through chapters of this epistle over and over and over and over again. It's not based upon you. It's based upon Jesus. It's not based on your performance, pass or fail. It's based upon the perfect, finished performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The willful sin is the person who's received this truth and basically puts it in one ear and out the other. They don't exercise any sort of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there remains, verse 26c, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is what Hebrews is all about. The law covenant's endless sacrifice versus the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus. If you reject Christ as the only way of salvation, as your only hope of righteousness and forgiveness, remission of sins and cleansing, if you reject that, there's nothing left. You have rejected Christ's own remedy. And it's not like this is a person who doesn't know about this. These people knew about it. They were told the truth. Well, the writer of Hebrews is going through it over and over and over again through chapter after chapter after chapter. And then it says, for those who refuse Christ and the perfection of all he did for them, verse 27 says, but there is a certain expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. God will not go on letting people go on in sin without Christ forever. And then it says in verse 28, it talks about the law covenant. And and under that covenant, it said, anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you see, In the case of the rejection and dying without mercy, who was that person? Was it a person who sinned? No, it was a person who rejected Moses' law, the old covenant. Now, under the new covenant, here is the willful sin. Again, it's brought out right there in verse 28. Those who rejected Moses' law, the old covenant, died without mercy. Well, under the new covenant, look at verse 29. It says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? Now, here is the person described who so willfully sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Pay very close attention to the different elements of this person who commits this willful sin. Verse 29b says, who has trampled the Son of God Underfoot, The Amplified Version says, has spurned and thus trampled underfoot the Son of God. And this is a person who also has counted the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus, by which he was sanctified a common thing. Now, the 
Greek word for common means profane, literally. Uh, the King James translates it an unholy thing. The ESV translates it uh, has profaned the the blood of the covenant. The New American Standard Bible says regarded as unclean. Vinos, vines, rather, excuse me, in the, with the Greek word koinos, which is what is used here, means defiled, coming into contact with everything. And the same person who willfully sins has committed this willful sin, has insulted the spirit of grace. The English Standard Version says outraged the spirit of grace. So this person who's committing the willful sin is a person who has, one, trampled the Son of God underfoot and, not or, and two, counted the blood of the covenant the blood of Jesus by which he was sanctified a common or profane thing. And three, has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, someone may still say, no, wait a minute. It does say that that person has um, counted the blood of the covenant, verse 29c, by which he was sanctified a common thing. What about this by which he was sanctified? Well, it could be forcefully argued particularly in the Greek, that the he here refers to Jesus and not the apostate. It was Christ's blood that sanctified him, Jesus, and set him apart as the appropriate sacrifice to ratify the new covenant. Another approach would be that one who is sanctified may not necessarily be a Christian. You say, well, where's that in the Bible, Mark? Well, that idea comes out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, verse 14, in the case of an unbelieving spouse. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Here's the bottom line of this warning, and it is a very serious warning, not just for the unbelieving Jew, but anybody who refuses to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to place their personal faith, not in their righteousness, not in their goodness, not in their holiness, but in the righteousness, holiness, and goodness of Christ alone. If that person, no matter who they are, if that person, and here's what's being spoken of as a final apostasy, if that person finally, totally, utterly rejects God's new covenant, forged in the blood of Christ, and that person has trampled the Son of God under Floyd, verse 29b, and that person has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy profane thing, verse 29c, and has insulted and outraged the spirit of grace, verse 29d, then for them, what we see in Hebrews 10:26, there is no longer a sacrifice for their sins. And for them, it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My dear friends, so many Christians born again by the grace of God have become terrified by these verses because they think somehow they might get to a state where this could be them. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
the whole book of Hebrews is not a treatise on losing your salvation. In fact, the book of Hebrews is a treatise on how you fail to be good enough, righteous enough, and holy enough. The law exposes sinners as sinners. But the new covenant and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect work, his perfection, is the infinite difference. And again, I go back to what I referenced here when we first started talking about this in this lesson, and that is these two critical key verses that are so clear about the finished work of Jesus Christ and the resulting certainty of our salvation as the result. Hebrews 10.10 says, By that will, whose will? The will of the Lord Jesus Christ. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Every once in a while, I'll have a person who will ask me, Mark, do you believe that a Christian can lose his salvation? And I say, absolutely 100% guaranteed if it was their salvation. But it's not their salvation. It's God's salvation, authored by none other than God himself, carried out and accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friends, your salvation is not yours to lose, but God's to keep. Let me say that again. Your salvation is not yours to lose, but God's to keep. The question is, is your ability to lose something greater than God's ability to keep it? Of course not. God's ability to keep it is infinite. And remember what we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4 about the rest. We are in that rest. We are in the finished work. Jesus Christ is seated. And the position of being seated in the Bible refers to one who has finished their work. He has finished the work from the foundations of the world, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 3. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you know something else, Christian, one who is in Christ? Ephesians chapter 2 says, You are seated with him in heavenly places. It's all by the goodness, the holiness, and the righteousness of God himself. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in this holy moment, as we bow before you, our hearts are soaking in and taking in the dimensions of your great love. And Lord, right away we recognize that our minds just can't possibly trace out those full dimensions in their richness and boundlessness. But I thank you, Lord, for your scripture, the the word, the, the Holy Bible. And I thank you, Father, for the spirit that brings the illumination and the enlightenment. Wisdom and revelation that we may know you better. Father, thank you for such an amazing heart of love toward us, toward me. 
in sending your son, Jesus, to do it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. By grace we're saved that in the endless ages to come, your grace will be magnified. Thank you, Father, for this. We worship you, God, and we honor you. And Lord, our hearts want to always sing of your love for us. Our hearts want to always sing of your goodness, of your greatness. To God be the glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.